Welcome to Rafa Radio, a series of podcasts in which we'll be exploring the investment universe and sharing our interpretation of what's going on. It's the case for almost everyone under the age of 50 that their first introduction to inflation came during a school history lesson. It was that gulping tale of wheelbarrows of cash being hauled along to buy a loaf of bread in the Weimar Republic. It was given an enticing and frightening name too, hyperinflation. And there, in the annals of history, inflation has remained. Until now. Inflation is back, anecdotally and in the data. Investors are now focused on the debate as to how long this spurt of inflation will last. The consensus says, just for a little while. But this may just be the wrong question entirely. So here to unpick the inflationary debate is investment director Bertie Dannett. Bertie, a very warm welcome to you. Hello, Rory. Uh, Good morning, everyone. And thank you very much for having me. Risk, as we know, is a beast with many heads. Market risk, liquidity risk, there's credit risk, longevity risk, and the one drawing the attention of investors now, inflation risk. But Bertie, before capital markets called your name, you were an officer in the British Army, where I understand risk meant something quite different to you in your day-to-day work. Uh, Thank you, Rory. And yes, it certainly did. And I think as a a young officer too, uh, one soon learned that risk has two faces. A happy face, uh, the joy of getting the mission done, and a sad face, uh, where the costs of failure could be very long-lasting. And I think what I've always enjoyed about working at Ruffer and the way that Ruffer thinks is that first and foremost, we aim to keep our clients safe. And then secondly, go on and think about how we might exploit any opportunities in capital markets. And that mindset and way of thinking has always sat very well with me. So Bertie, as we know, everyone is talking about inflation once again. Inflation risk is back on the table. But could you just explain why exactly that is? Well, quite simply, Rory, the US inflation report last month was extraordinary. Uh, In short, the month-on-month rise in core inflation in the US economy was the largest since 1981, uh, the month uh, and year I was born. And within that, there was some extraordinary contributions from different consumer goods, of which my favourite was the move in US TV prices, which saw a rise of 11% in its price over the last six months to May, with a corresponding rise of 4.5% over the last 12 months. And that equates to US TV price inflation at its highest level since 1957. So yes, it is fair to say that financial markets and commentators have suddenly been abuzz with the news of the re-emergence of inflationary risk and of rising prices. I mean, that is extraordinary. So just to get my head around it, what you're saying is that for 50 years, the price of TVs has been falling owing to technological advancements and that sort of thing. And then in the last year, there has been this sudden and really quite material uptick in the prices of TVs. And of course, that speaks to inflation heating up everywhere across the economy. Actually, just before we started recording, Bertie, we were talking about garden furniture in particular, and we find ourselves on opposite sides of the trade where I was selling garden furniture and you were buying it. Uh, Yes, absolutely. And I think we concluded, Rory, that you would, if you had been selling to me, 
not have exploited your price advantage to my detriment. But uh, I don't think we quite closed that one out. No, well, I uh, I know what's good for me, Bertie. So uh, I'm sure we could have stuck a very reasonable deal. Rafa have been talking about the risk of inflation since 2008 and the wake of the global financial crisis. How has the rougher view of inflation evolved and developed in that intervening period? And, and what's changed now? Well, I think where Ruffer's view hasn't changed is that we've been remarkably consistent on the what, the risk of a burst of inflationary pressure. We've also been remarkably consistent on the why, that this inflation would likely originate from the inevitable coordination of loose monetary policy and loose fiscal policy. But what we found much harder to pin down is the when. And quite simply, we did not know pre the extraordinary events of 2020 when the next recessionary shock might arrive and nor when it did arrive, whether it would be large enough to force the hands of policymakers to take the necessary steps to push us into the new investment regime. Yet now, from our vantage point of halfway through 2021, it does feel like we're starting to get some of those answers. And the pandemic and its aftermath is certainly providing some impetus for change. And as I said a little bit earlier, Bertie, the question that everyone is asking themselves is whether this inflationary uptick is transitory or whether it is permanent. What's your view on that? Well, from our perspective, a key message that we want to communicate is that the pandemic should be viewed as a catalyst to this inflationary pressure, but not its cause. It is a catalyst insofar as this has caused significant supply chain disruption. And that's taken the form of less goods arriving in their target markets, typically in the West. So existing inventories in the West have been drawn down with the price of garden furniture et al correspondingly going up. Likewise, on the other side of the equation, the pandemic has acted as a catalyst in that it has created strong consumer demand in the form of the global consumer who has in effect been paid to stay at home over the last 15 months and in doing so has built up a significant pile of savings that they are now desperate to get out and spend, to go on holiday, to buy consumer goods, etc. And thirdly, the pandemic has acted as a catalyst because it has created a low bar or a favourable year-on-year dynamic for the price of goods to be compared at relative to what they were 12 months ago. And the clearest example I can give to you of that is the price of a barrel of oil, which in May 2020 was trading in around $30 a barrel. But 12 months on, after a vaccination stimulus-led recovery, that barrel of oil is now trading at circa $70 a barrel. But the key point here, Rory, is that to dismiss this surge in prices as merely an isolated and transitionary episode would be to miss the bigger picture. And so to that point too, we should not be remotely surprised if 
this surge in prices, which we're witnessing right now, results in later this year slash early next year, some of those prices starting to fall and head down to their targets or maybe even beneath their targets. Because the bigger picture here and what we really need to focus on is that we are in the midst of a once in a generation structural change in the investment regime. We are breaking away in our view from 40 years of disinflationary price pressure to a new financial markets backdrop, which is likely to be more prone to the types of inflationary pressure we're seeing right now. And we're likely to see more inflation volatility. And that is the true cause of what is going on right now and what we should really be focusing on. So, Bertie, once people have gone out and they've spent all their savings that they couldn't do over lockdown and perhaps when supply chains begin to smooth out and the flow of goods is a little better, what you're saying, actually, is that inflation over the course of the next 6, 12 months should, in fact, fall back again. So it's not that you're saying inflation is here and it's going to rise month on month until we get to a fixed point at some point in the future. There is something more structural going on in which we expect more volatility. And it's this structural regime change that I'm interested in. Could you just give us a little bit on why you think that this is such a fundamental departure? Because first and foremost, the balance sheets of many national governments after 15 months of enforced lockdown are totally shot. I mean, take the UK as an example, we have a budget deficit as a proportion of our GDP, which is in a worse state than at any other point in the last 200 years. And our high-level conviction is that the clearing mechanism for this debt pile will not be higher taxes, will not be a hard default, but will be higher levels of inflation. Secondly, this is structural because we are now seeing for the first time, really since the 1970s, the onset at scale of coordinated loose fiscal policy akin to 20% of GDP in the US, combined with ultra-loose monetary policy, rock-bottom interest rates, and huge amounts of quantitative easing, which represents, in our minds, something of a, a crossing of the River Rubicon moment and a feeling that now populist politicians who are in power across Western developed market economies, now they've got their arms around the magic money tree of coordinated slack monetary and slack fiscal policy will find that very difficult to let go of. And thirdly, and probably most significantly, we feel that the dominant structural political geopolitical and social drivers of the old disinflationary regime of the last 40 years are either significantly diminished or have gone into reverse in the last five to 10 years. And to really emphasize the importance of this point, I just want to briefly jump to a, uh, an analogy, one of my favorite analogies, which is the story of two young fish swimming along, when one day they come across an older fish swimming back the other way, who greets them and says, good morning, how is the water? The two young fish look at each other and swim on another couple of meters before one fish turns to the other 
and says, what the hell is water? <laughs> and the water in the investment world is the investment backdrop within which we all operate, which many investors seem unaware is fundamentally changing around them. And the incredibly supportive investment environment of the last 40 years of falling interest rates, falling levels of inflation, and very high returns on capital feels to us like it is a thing of the past. And we need to start focusing on what the new water ahead of us is bringing and means for investors. Rashi, I feel like you've spared listeners an impression of little Nemo from Finding Nemo as he helplessly traversed the seven seas in his search for his father. Um, I don't think we can talk about fish without thinking of that little clownfish. Anyway, Rashi, let's hone in on the, the monetary policy dynamics that you just touched on. Central banks have two main functions. One is to maximize employment, and the second is to control inflation. But the insinuation that I feel that you're making is that they will be unable to achieve this second goal, to keep inflation at or around an average of 2% a year for the foreseeable future. Why do you think that central banks will be unable to keep the lid on inflation? Well, I think central banks will either be unable or simply won't want to keep the lid, at least in the short term, on inflationary pressure, because I think the inflationary genie is somewhat already out of the bottle, in fact. And as Milton Freeman neatly captures in that timeless quote, there is nothing so permanent as a temporary government contract. But I think also there's something else at work here, which is important to throw into the mix at this stage, which is that there is clearly a, a psychological element mm. to inflation too. Um, and that is that the truth about money and inflation is that it is ultimately a confidence game. And when we get to the point where the crowd start to believe that we're going to see more and more examples of the types of inflationary pressure that we're seeing now and interpret that as proof that the authorities are trying to undermine their savings more permanently, I think that is the moment that potentially very suddenly and quickly, that people will cross that inflationary psychological tipping point and then start spending their money today as opposed to saving it because they will be genuinely concerned that the five pounds in their pocket will not buy them the equivalent goods in one month, six months or 12 months time. And there won't be an awful lot that central banks can do to stop that when that happens. And that speaks to the fact that inflation is simply the expectation of inflation and in that way is completely self-fulfilling. So as soon as it's here, it's very hard to, to put the toothpaste back into the tube, as it were. Bertie, why is this change in the investment waters, this regime change, so important for investors? It is so important for investors because typically investment regime changes of this nature are very disruptive for a whole range of different asset prices. And attached to that is the crucial point that your starting point when you embark upon this type of regime change really matters. And the truth is that we're starting on this journey at a moment where interest rates are close to their 500-year lows, equities are expensively priced on a variety of different metrics. So at the very least, you wouldn't choose 
to start from here. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, as I referred to in my last answer, the last 40 years really have been akin to a golden era for investors, where not only have we seen standout strong returns from the two largest asset classes in the investment world, both bonds and equities, which have delivered strong overall returns. But crucially, too, they've had this incredibly helpful characteristic that in moments of market stress over the last 40 years, these two principal asset classes have actually been negatively correlated. So when equities fell sharply, bonds actually appreciated in value and vice versa. And this has meant that investors have not only enjoyed strong overall returns, but strong risk-adjusted returns too. And the point that I want to stress here is that we think the investment waters within which we swim are changing. And in this new environment that we're going into, this correlation, this negative correlation that's been so helpful to fund managers over the last 40 years is unlikely to hold. Percy, I think it would be remiss not to acknowledge the powerful disinflationary forces that have been at play for the last 40 years. Um, You've touched on them briefly, but could you just give us a little bit more colour on those uh, and why you think the wind is potentially coming out of those particular sales? The strongest disinflationary factor over that period has undoubtedly been advances in computer sciences, uh, whether that be digital technologies, the growth of AI, robotics, But close behind that, we've had the rise of globalization, uh, a period of of Pax Americana, a period in time of extraordinary peace and prosperity, really, where we've only had one global superpower ruling uh, the system uh, or exerting significant influence over the system. And that's also gone hand in hand with a time where we've seen an extraordinary expansion in the global labor market, resulting from the emergence of China, And also a change in in the social contract almost, where dual income workers uh, have become much more accepted and we've seen a massive rise in female participation in the labour force. And all of those factors, and to be clear on this point, Rory, are powerful drivers of disinflation. Yet our point is that with the exception of the technology point, the remaining points are either significantly diminished in their disinflationary influence or are due to one-off factors, which are highly likely or cannot be repeated again, such as the emergence of China, or have actually actively gone into reverse and are now driving the new inflationary narrative, such as the politics in the West, where we've seen the rise of the anti-globalization, anti-immigration and populist politician narrative. So it's not to say that these aren't incredibly and haven't been incredibly powerful disinflationary influences, but it is to say that that times are changing and investors need to be aware of that. Bertie, if we don't see higher levels of inflation volatility going forward, which, which assets will perform well in so much as what's the alternative? What's on the other side of the rougher view? Well, I think if we we don't see this shift, which we've been discussing, then fundamentally, Rory, what you'll see is you'll see the same trades that have worked so effectively over the last 10 years, even the last 30 or 40 years, continue to work 
very effectively. So your growth equities um, will likely continue to do well because they benefit from very low interest rates. What about conventional bonds? Presumably, they would they would continue their their role as an offset and and as a, a sort of a performing asset class. I think that's absolutely right. And if you want to play the yield compression on the US 10-year government bond from 1.4% where it is today down towards zero because you believe we are stuck in a fundamentally disinflationary world, then that's exactly the type of trade you, you want to place. So yes, that is my answer. If we're not going to see the type of regime change which we anticipate, then Rafa will be fine, but there will be more exciting alternatives uh, in the investment universe. And the status quo will continue. So Bertie, to summarise what you've said, we've had an inflationary step, big uptick in prices, owing in part to the effect of, of the pandemic. And commentators are broadly saying that this is transitory. Your argument, however, is that this is something more structural, that we're beginning to swim in new investment waters in a changed investment regime. So if that is the case, what should investors do? Investors need to consider inflation protection uh, in the form of gold or what we call 21st century gold at Rupa, which is uh, awaiting to index-linked government bonds. Uh, investors also need to reconsider the composition of their equity books, because if we're moving into a world of rising interest rates, rising inflation and higher nominal growth, then an equity book comprised of more economically sensitive equities and equities which will benefit from rising rates makes sense, typically financials, commodities and more cyclical stocks. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, investors need to consider holding some genuine protection because going back to a previous point, in this new environment in which we're going to, we anticipate that the transition will be very disruptive, so genuine protection will be required, further to which we think the protection that many fund managers have employed over the last 20, 30, 40 years of a mix of bonds and equities simply won't work in the new environment into which we're going. So new investment waters into which we will just keep swimming. Bertie, thank you so much for your time and thank you for listening. For more on Ruffer and how we think and invest, visit ruffer.co.uk. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The views expressed in this podcast are the views of Ruffer LLP. They do not constitute as investment research or advice and may be subject to change. Rafa LLP is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.